So we will not have classes and we will not have the TGIW dinner. So next week, don't come at five unless you just want to get a really good seat for the Ash Wednesday service. <laughs> come at 6.30 or a little before because we're going to start at 6.30 for what will be about a half an hour to 35 or 40 minute service. Uh, it really just depends on how long it takes for people to do the ashes. We usually have a pretty big crowd and, and I'm the only one doing it so it takes a while. But uh, 6.30 in the sanctuary, all the other doors are going to be locked and you want to just use the main entrance up here uh, by the office or at the sanctuary doors. But we we'll hope to see you there and then we'll get back together here the next time. And then April 1st will be the next one where we're not here for class but everything will be running on schedule. We're just going to encourage everybody to go downstairs and hear the suicide awareness presentation because <coughs> we think it's important enough these days that everybody in our classes should go to that. Yes, sir, how can I help you? Are we going to have one on March 25th also? Uh, that would be spring break. I'm going to be on vacation that week, so I guess not. <laughs> March 25th is spring break, and we usually coincide with the school breaks, so you're right. Thank you. So March 25th, we won't have anything here, and the doors will be closed. And in fact, several of us have to be gone that week, so I don't know that the office will be open that much that week. So if you need to get in the church, either get a key or get a key holder to help you out. Um, just worked out that way. I don't know. What else? Mike Howard stirring up trouble? Absolutely. I just asked him a question. <laughs> he thinks that's what his part of this group is. I see. You know, I grew up in, in western Pennsylvania near, near Pittsburgh, and, and the folks there would call that kibitzing. Hmm. You're a kibitzer, Pennsylvania Dutch say. I could t probably use another word for it, but not here. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, the Irish would call what you're thinking of as Blarney. <laughs> Well, we know he's always a sign of straw there. <laughs> there you go. Split yep. three ways, even. Yes. All go. right, gang. So we're at uh, lesson five and chapter five of our book, and your study guides are on the table. There's two piles that I'm aware of. One's right there by Kaylee and Meredith. There's another pile down the table a little further. So if you need one, wave your hand. We'll make sure someone sends it your way. And. Uh, anybody walks in, we'll just be sure to pass one to them because that's the first thing they're going to wonder. What are we looking at and what are we talking about? So this lesson, I think, is one that might, I don't want to say that the others haven't been interesting because I sure hope they have, but we're getting closer to the Islam that we think we understand now. That We're getting a lot closer to what we see in our world today. And this lesson will really kind of open your eyes to that. And one of the things that I think you need to be aware of as you go through this lesson is to look for not only those things that happen with Islam, but see if you can recognize how they also happen in Christianity and Judaism and a lot of other, uh, even political points of view. It, it, I know what, what this is called, a general term for this is dog, uh, dogmatism. Doesn't have anything to do with the canine. Dogmatism or being dogmatic means that you are committed to a belief system even if you don't understand it. So in church we usually talk about theology, which is theos means God and ology means study of or science of. 
So theology is the understanding of God. And then we talk about doctrine, which is the church's rules or guidelines around our belief system. So they say, this is in, this is out. So that's doctrine. And doctrine is usually found in something like the United Methodist Book of Discipline you know, or something like that. And, and every religious system has a doctrine. And it's based on their theology. And there are subclasses of theology, like there's Christology, which is the understanding of the nature of the Christ or the Messiah. There's soteriology, which is the study of the nature of our salvation, deliverance from sin. So, so it gets really, these are words church people use. You hear them in seminary more than anything. But, but basically, dogma is something that can't be verified. And what's really interesting is, is that when you think about this community, let's say, and you think about the various religious customs that people practice, not just the Catholics, but everybody in this community, there's an awful lot of it that's dogma. It's something they believe and they consider it traditional, so it must be true, but it doesn't necessarily have any real basis that anybody can cling to. So keep that in mind, because there's a lot of religious dogmatism, and there's a very interesting parallel in the political system because there's an awful lot of Democrats and Republicans are really just dogmatists. They're not really committed to a Republican ideal or a Democratic ideal. They're committed to who they hate. They're committed to uh, capitalism versus, you know, uh, you know, a free market economy, capitalism versus socialism or something like that. So, I mean, they, they have dogmatic beliefs too. So, so when we talk about Islam, one of the things we've got to be really willing to do is to recognize ourselves in this too. So we are going to see that the Quran is still a weak document. And it doesn't have certain critical strengths that the Bible has. But as we were just talking about before the class started, there are a lot of people who believe in the Bible, but they have a whole dogmatic system around it that supersedes what the Bible says. You know, they, like, have you ever heard, now I don't want you to be embarrassed if you didn't know, okay, but, but have you ever heard someone say, the Bible says the Lord helps those that help themselves. Have you ever heard somebody say that? How many of you know that's not in the Bible? There is, there's no place in the Bible where it says that. But you'd be amazed at how many people love Jesus, go to church every Sunday, believe the Bible is God's word for the people of God, and they think it says that. That's dogmatism, okay? So let's get into our class and see, you know, because what I want to do is not get so hard on Islam that we forget that we're all guilty of these things and we're all motivated in the same way, which is why being a Christian is so unique. And what's really, the, the worst thing about what's happened, the worst thing that's happened to Christianity is the normalization of Christianity. The worst thing that could have happened to Christianity is for it to become normal and, the, and to not suffer because of it. Because once it becomes normal, then we continue to normalize it and, and we, we kind of, we, we, you know, it's like, it's like having a car without a battery, you know. I mean, you've got this beautiful car, but you can't take it anywhere because there's no energy to fire it up and get it doing what it's made to do. So let's look at this and see what happens. So in the first theological debate, between works and faith, why did the Karhijatites or Tajibudisms believe that people are only saved by what they do? So if you read the book, you know what I'm talking about, but if you didn't, that's okay. 
So after Islam became a thing and the Quran became a thing, some thinking people came along and said, no, wait a minute. Are you saying that faith is more important than good works, or are you saying good works is more important than faith? Which one is it? Faith. Now, which one are you answering? Your Christian belief or the Islamic belief? I'm a Christian. Okay, all right. Because the problem they were faced with in Islam at that time is that it was a politically driven religion. So I don't want to review things we've already talked about, but you remember that Islam became a thing at a time when certain really effective leaders among the Arab peoples were trying to unify them so that they could conquer the land and they could possess its riches. And they did it during a vacuum where the Romans weren't in the picture anymore and the Byzantines weren't in the picture anymore. So the Arab leaders are trying to get all those Arab people together and they say, well, there's one uniquely Arab thing and it's our belief in Allah and his prophet Muhammad. And so they use that to drive a political force that motivated their armies to do what they wanted them to do. So the religion seems to follow the politics instead of the politics following the religion. By the way, there's another one of those $10 church words. When a government is set up around a religion, it's called a theocracy. And some of the Islamic countries to this day, right now, are theocracies, like Iran. Who's the number one guy in Iran? Their religious leader. And he's got more power than the prime minister. So he doesn't mess with the prime minister because it's like, you do the politics, I'll do the religion. Unless I don't like your politics, in which case I'm going to invoke some religious law that everybody will assume I'm the one that's right because I'm the religious authority. So that's a theocracy. It means that God's in charge, but in reality there's only been one successful theocracy and it only lasted a little while. And that was when Moses was leaving, leading the people around the wilderness. That was a theocracy. God was in charge, and Moses was his obedient servant. So that was an effective theocracy for a little while. But as soon as people start taking over the theos part, then it's not really a theocracy. It's a religiocracy, <clears throat> or something along those lines. So they believed that sin invalidates faith. So one of the, so, so one of the power groups was saying, well... Sin invalidates faith, meaning I can't have faith or I wouldn't sin. It, you know, because, because with faith, I, don't, I no longer sin. And there were people who debated that and said, well, wait a minute. If, if you're saying that because of your faith you never sin, then what do you do about that thing I know you did the other day that violates the Koran? And somebody had to say, well, you're right. I mean, I, I, you know, we all, I mean, how many of us here know we're sinners just because we sin? Right? So we have resolved as Christians the problem of our original sin, which is our tendency to sin uh, subconsciously. To, 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 you know, we are separated from God by original sin, but Jesus has taken away the power of original sin to separate us from God. But we still have to discipline ourselves daily in order to live repentant, holy lives, and we all do okay, but I'll bet you before this evening's over, every one of us is going to sin 50 times. Because to a certain extent, we don't even know when we're sinning sometimes. You know, 
I mean, you, you might think you're sinning when you let a cuss word loose as you pull out and somebody honks at you for come, you know, pulling out in front of them or something. But it's not like that at all. I mean, sometimes we sin because we're simply rejecting God's will and we don't even know when we've acted independent of God's will. So we know we're sinners. That's the point. We know we're sinners. So we know that our works are not an indication of the quality of our faith. Because I have tremendous faith. And I screw up 50 times an hour. You know, I, I love the Lord very much. I, my faith has only increased in intensity with the passing of my years. And I'm confident about that. And I'm confident the Lord loves me despite my failures. And King David's one of the guys that assures me of that, by the way. Because I think if he was a man after God's own heart, he screwed up way worse than I've ever screwed up. Because so far, I don't think I've gotten anybody killed to hide an illegitimate pregnancy. With a 12-year-old. And that's what David did. Okay? And he died a man after God's own heart, but a little bit too dirty to build the temple. So what's that tell you about God? He has a great deal of investment in our hearts, but he also does keep track of our, do, or our do's and our don'ts and our activities and, and things. And, and at some point they do take a toll, you know. So what the Islamist people are saying is, well, if the word of the Quran is the very mind, it's the, it's the word of God. It's like, remember they believe that Gabriel dictated it to Muhammad. And Gabriel was getting it directly from God. So he is writing down what he memorized because he didn't know how to write. So he tells everybody what to write down. And eventually they write down the Quran and it is the word of God. Not like we think of the word of God. For example, I talked to you about the logos of the mind of God. I said, look, the Bible is the logos. Or what John says in the Gospel of John is the word with a capital W. It's the same thing. The English capital W word is the same as logos, which is Greek. Both refer to the heart and mind of God. And what that means is you read the Bible and read something that seems kind of ridiculous. But when you read the Bible in a whole, and, and as you read through the scriptures, you begin to realize that you're learning more about God than the sum of its parts. You're, you understand more about God's nature because you read the Bible, not because you read this confusing passage. Somebody asked me today about how in Leviticus, one of the things the priests had to do before they could go into the Holy of Holies was put a little drop of blood behind their right ear, a little drop of blood on their right hip, and a little bit on their right toe and the right finger and all this. And they're just asking me what that's all about. And the answer is, we don't have time for me to answer that for you. But And I'd have to go back and get my notes from seminary. But there's a reason. The point is, is that doesn't tell you much about God in and of itself, but when you begin to realize the picture of what's being done here, in order to make it possible for people to stand in the presence of God, this tells you that everything has to be exactly right for you to stand in the presence of God and live to tell about it. But now, as Christian believers, as born-again believers, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, which means that we can stand in the presence of God because We've been redeemed through Jesus. That's why the curtain in the temple was rent. Just happened to be in my sermon notes for this Sunday. But they're looking at Allah from a totally different perspective. They're saying this is Allah's word and there's no debating it. You do what it says and doing what it says proves your faith. And then another, another group is saying, 
No, I don't think it proves your faith if you do what it says. I think that doing what it says is a way to build your faith. You know, so one's saying faith comes first and works come second, and the other one is saying works come first and faith comes second. And Larry says in Christianity, faith comes first and works comes second. How many of you agree with that? Okay. So already we found a flaw with the Quran, but it's still a truth that we can wrap our minds around as Christians, right? Larry, what, how do they um, take care of their sins if they're if they're not doing what we do? How do how are they how are they repenting? Do you have any idea? Uh, they have to do what the Quran says, and we actually will be coming to that. But but the way they get themselves right with Allah is by doing what the the Quran says, and the one who does most of the things the Quran says most frequently wins the big prize. You know, um, anybody ever see Logan's Run, movie from the 70s, sci-fi movie? <sighs> Ten years ago, I could use references like this, and people still knew what I was talking about. It's where it's it's a future world of Earth, and nobody is allowed to live past 30. And so, what? And they have this religious Great. system. We're all dead. Well, so they have this religious system, and and everybody just goes along with it. Nobody ever argues with it. And in this religious system, you know, on your thirtieth birthday, you get to go to a special chamber where you get to try to reach the pinnacle. And if you reach it, you get to live forever. But nobody ever reaches it. They just get zapped, and that's that. They're gone. You know, what happened to Fred? Well, he tried to reach the pinnacle. How old are you? 29? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> you know, so so the whole the whole thing about it was is that they were taught that this was normal. And one person starts to question it, right? And and they get outside this closed community they live in and they run into an old man. At the very end of the movie, they run into this man who's like 80 years old and he's got a beard down to here and hair down to here. And they just, they're touching him and, and they're smelling him and they're looking at him and they can't figure out. They've never seen a person this old before. They, they had no idea people could live to be that old. And of course, it shatters their whole paradigm. They can never go back now because now they know people can live past. That's exactly what we're dealing with here. And it'll become more clear as we go through the lesson. Um, so the, the Mujeritsun writes counter the view by saying that Allah can judge one's heart. That only Allah can judge one's heart. So what they were saying was, is you can't say that a person isn't faithful just because they failed to keep the law, because only Allah knows what's in their heart. Well, that's kind of what I would say too. Aren't we Christians judgmental sometimes? Aren't we just really tempted to say, mm -hmm. I don't think that, that that boy's not right with God because if you were right with God, you wouldn't do that. Well, who am I to say that? Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is one of the reasons I harp on it whenever certain subjects come up in church life. And, and I just say, look, you know, the only place you can really keep clean and orderly is your own place. You can try to get other people to see the error of their ways, mainly because of you know, sometimes you can see very clearly what they fail to be able to see. I mean, that's happened to me before. You, I'm walking down the road, and I'm about to step in a pile of something, and you see from a distance what I can't see right in front of my face, and you go, Dan, stop now. And if I say, mind your own business, and then my foot's full of, you know what? It's not like you didn't warn me. So we all have this desire to warn one another against sin, 
But when we start judging people's character, when we start putting an assignment of worth to them, there's where our big mistake is. And what these guys are saying basically is we don't think that the quality of a person's actions is necessarily a determiner of their worth. Well, we're going to find out that they, uh, they lost. All right, that, that crowd got systematically refuted and dismissed. And this is when it happened, when the second big debate came up. So the second big debate of Islam was a debate about free will and predestination. Guess what? Christians have debated this one too in the past, but free will means that you have total control over your life and the only way that you can really uh, know how things are going to turn out is to just start making choices and see what happens. Whereas predestination says everything you do was decided ahead of time. And there were Islamic people who were saying, we think that Allah is all-knowing, all authority. The Quran says so. That means there's not a step I take or a breath I take that he hasn't already preordained. He's already planned it for me. I'm living a program, a computer program, you know. I'm old enough to remember how to write basic. Anybody ever heard of basic? Yeah, I thought a few of you would. I knew Penny would. You know, in basic, you wrote if-then statements. And you might write 500 lines of code just to make a dune buggy go across your screen and stop, you know. <laughs> but it was if-then this, you know. If, one, if x equals, equals y, then this. And, and you wrote all these statements, but it was a program. And if the program was written right, then it ran according to plan. If it was written wrong, it would run right up until the part that was wrong, and then it would say, you know, error or, or missing integer or something like that, you know. And so that's what predestination is, and that's the idea behind that. So, so uh, the argument was kind of a debate between whether it's better to have blind faith or to have a... a, a, a an interaction with God. So, so considering the second debate involving free will and predestination, why have most Muslims continued to conclude that everything must be predestined by Allah, including the actions of individuals? And my answer is because blind faith is easier to maintain than constant or consistent reasoning. Mm -hmm. I mean, really. Who doesn't find it easier? Think about kids you know. You know Christmas just passed. Think about little kids you know. Um, I was the thinker, right? I was the critical thinker. I had terrible grades in school, so nobody ever accused me of being a critical thinker, but it doesn't mean it wasn't going on. And some of the kids in my class would start having that debate around third or fourth grade whether they're Santa Claus or not. And I'd listen to both sides of the argument, and then I'd reason it out, and then I'd maybe go home and tell my mom after school, I'd say, you know, I've been thinking about this whole Santa Claus thing. <laughs> and I would give her my critical argument. and. And she'd say, well, you know, son, it's just a matter of faith at the end, you know. And then, of course, when I listened to my friends debate about it, there were the ones that were like, I can't hear you. There is a Santa Claus. I don't want to hear this. And they whistle louder and yell. And they're like, don't tell me there's no Santa Claus. I don't want to believe that there's no Santa Claus. I want to believe there is a Santa Claus. And the other ones are very rational. And they're like, ah, come on, seriously. Haven't you noticed that your parents mysteriously disappear as you're getting ready to go for that ride in the car and look at Christmas lights? And, and, and you know, I'm listening to both sides and I'm thinking about both sides, but the, th the interesting thing is, is that it starts as early as that. Rational thought causes some of us to question everything and it causes others to shut down, say, I'm done. 
I'm done. This is only making me uncomfortable. I will not engage in this terrifying exercise of thinking. Right? Come on. You know it's true. What's amazing is, is that some people in the world have found that as justification for flying an airplane into a building and killing a thousand people. Because you think, well, it's okay if eight-year-olds want to argue about Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, and stuff like that. But when they grow up and they do horrible, horrific things to their fellow men, humanity, because it's still easier to just know that this is right because the Quran says so and that's that, we got a problem. It's beginning to start to feel like this is the religion that you think you knew about before you started the class. Now all of a sudden I'm thinking these are the Muslims that I see on TV and you know the ones that are holding their guns up in the air and shooting up in the air. And, you know, uh, this is where you, you know. I remember last week I told you to pay attention because it's where we first hear the term Sunni and Shia. Well, the next thing that happens then is this these critical debates. One of them is saying. We think Allah can be reasoned with and that we can reason with one another about Allah. And another group is saying absolute faith in Allah, total trust in Allah, complete submission to the authority of the Quran is the source of my salvation. And I'm closer to God if I can count the number of ways that I faithfully fulfill the precepts of the Quran. Well, do you know any Christians like that? that, you know, count how many times a week they go to church or how many times a month they go to church or count how many prayers they say each week and, and they're keeping a record and they're thinking, well, surely I'm going to heaven because I give this much to church. I, I, uh, I always compliment the sermon even though it was stupid. You know, I mean, people think of a hundred ways that they're getting themselves right with God by obeying rules, dogmatic rules that they have in their head. So can Christians be like this? Sure they can. Dan, going back to that deal when you were talking about acts and faith and faith and acts, didn't haven't we in this, this part of the conversation just gone to both ends of it as Christians? And and, and the person that, that you were talking about that, you know, counts how many times they pray and counts how many times they go to church and all that. And, and maybe they're doing that until their heart gets right. Mm -hmm. and, their, and then their faith gets right. Because now as far as counting how many times you pray, I don't do that. But I do actually write down each Sunday that I come to worship so that I know how many. I mean, it's, but I don't. I don't advertise it. I don't, you know, I, I, I do write it down on my calendar and I do keep track of it, but it's, but that's from my own personal uh, view. But, but I'm thinking that people can go through and do acts, do works, and as they, as they continue to do them, maybe their heart gets right and their mm -hmm. faith is stronger, as well as what Larry says with your faith getting stronger and as a result you do. Mm -hmm. No, I think you make a good point. I, and I know a little, you know, if you've shared your story with me a little bit, I get it. In fact, we're getting ready to go into the season of Lent, and I'm going to encourage people, you know, take up some Lenten practice, practices. Lent's always a good season to practice a fast or to begin a, a particular Bible study or 
or a new prayer habit, you know, and, and, and to say, I'm doing it in the name of Lent. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to do this for the rest of my life. I'm just going to try to do it between now and Easter, and then who knows, maybe it sticks. But, but we call those spiritual disciplines, and it's good to have spiritual disciplines. And like any discipline, record-keeping is one of the ways that you keep yourself accountable for the spiritual discipline. So there's nothing wrong with that. And I admit, sometimes I get lathered up, as my friend used to say, and it isn't that I'm really trying to condemn everybody. I'm really talking about a frame of mind. And I think the frame of mind that we see here that is prevalent among the Islamic people is not uncommon among Christians and Jews and a lot of other religious behavior or even political behavior. Just, it just feels better to not really think and, and exercise your brain too much, but to be able to know that you did whatever you thought you were supposed to do. And I think that's the point. It, it's funny because, because on both sides of this, the one that won out was the one that was easier. On the debates, it, the reasons that were given by the thinkers, the philosophers, were valid. But the people in charge of the political outcomes of this religious Arab paradigm, they would say, now wait a minute, if, if the thinkers get a hold of this, we're going to disintegrate, disintegrate and fragment again. We're going to end up like a broken people like we once were. And it was the faithfulness to the Quran that brought us together and made us one people, and we conquered our enemies. And so they're looking at the benefits and the costs of embracing the, the thinkers' ideas, and they go, well, you might be right, but most of those poor schmucks out there would be better off with the straightforward religion that's not complicated. And that's what they come up with. And you know, we were, we were together, we were talking about this before the, the class tonight, because it happens in Christianity and Judaism too. The reason, that we, the reason Jesus had so much trouble with the Pharisees is because they had done the same thing to the law of Yahweh, right? They had taken the law of Moses and overcomplicated it and created a whole system called the Pharisaical system. And the teachers of the leaders of the law were, were people that Jesus condemned left and right because they had turned... God's law, God's truth, from the mind of God, they turned that into a, something created by the minds of men, and it was a religious system. And Christianity did the same thing. Christianity started out as a movement, and then it got organized, and then it got approved by the government, and then it got Romanized, and then it got just riddled with all kinds of pagan idolatry. And they've pretty much mm -hmm. taken the heart out of Christianity and created religion. But what's really cool is, is within religion, there are people who get into it because they think this is how you get to be closer to the heart of Jesus, and then when they realize the system is corrupt and it's not getting them any closer to Jesus, then they spin off a movement from within the corrupt religion that becomes, for a time, something that's really bringing people closer to Jesus, and then it turns into a system you watch this cycle repeat over and over again in history. Our denomination is going through it right now. What we're doing right now is nothing that is, it, it's, it's exactly the same thing that John Wesley did to the Anglican Church. He said it's dead, it's corrupt, it's political, it oppresses some people, it ignores some people, but it also, you know, gets manipulated for certain people's sake and, and all of this, and, and you know what, we just want the true religion. We want Jesus. We want the Holy Spirit. And so John Wesley and Charles and their friends from the Holy Club that got nicknamed Methodist, 
they started this movement where people were finding out that the Holy Spirit can come into your heart and make your faith come alive. But before Wesley was done, he wrote, before he died, he wrote in one of his journals, I can already see how this thing's going to turn into another religion in one of these days. It's going to fragment, fall apart, and it'll be another dead religion. And, and everything he predicted has happened 300 years later. It's happened several times since then, but now it's like at the ultimate end here. <clears throat> but guess what's going to emerge from that? Movement. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, hope we're part of the movement. Whatever happens, I just want to be a place where the Holy Spirit is the source of power in the church and Jesus is the life that we claim, you know, and that it isn't about our religion and stuff. But I digress. I just, I find it really interesting that, that you know, uh, this is not going to, you know, I don't want this to hurt your faith in Christ because Christ is always the same. It's the people who change things up by mixing the religion with their politics and mixing the religion with their with their tastes, you know, like, well, you go to McDonald's, I go to Wendy's. I don't know why anybody would eat McDonald's because Wednesday's, Wednesday's, Wendy's is so much better, you know. Well, I'm a rallies guy. Oh, you're one of those, are you? You know, isn't it the same thing? Yeah, I went to the Mayor's Ecumenical Council today where he gets all the pastors from town together. There was Catholic priests there, two Lutherans. And these are two Lutherans who are pastors of two churches that are about a mile apart because their church split a long time ago over doctrinal and dogmatic differences, right? You know, so, so one wears a tie and the other one wears a collar, but they're both Lutherans, which makes them better than the rest of us. I'm just saying, you know, because even though they wouldn't set foot in either one of their churches, they definitely agree that Lutherans are better, whatever brand they are. And the same way with the Catholic priests. And of course, we, you know, Methodists sitting there going, well, we just love everybody, but that's why we're better than all of you, because we love everybody, you know. <laughs> and, and the Baptist is sitting over there, and he's going, yeah, but we, we don't, when we baptize people, we put them all the way under the water. None of that stupid sprinkling stuff you Catholics, Lutherans, and Methodists do. And you see what I'm saying? Religion ruins everything about good Christianity. So what we're talking about is, the, the, in my opinion, the difference between Christian religions and Islamic religions is Christian religions are based in something very real and tangible and actively involved in creation, and that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's only cruddy religion when people have more authority over it than the Spirit of God. But Islam, what you can see is that there's nothing really Spirit-led about it. It's a political thing that's been organized into a religion because this is perfect way to manipulate people. And what we're seeing as we read through this debate, every time somebody started really thinking hard about what the Quran said, they got shut down. Think about this one. It's in this book. Do you remember where he said it? There's a place in this book where he says that the Quran and the religion of Muhammad is really just the same as Soviet communism that Stalin and Marx were preaching the same thing, that Hitler was preaching the same thing. Totalitarian, um, uh, fascist, you know, e e egocentric leaders like these, these, you know, Mussolini and guys like that, they all have one thing in common. They need to keep the people ignorant and they need to feed them a short, easy to remember set of lies. And then they can get them to do whatever they want. You can get your people to murder the thinkers, and then systematically eliminate all the Jews and all the gypsies and all the Russian-descended people. You, you see what I mean? 
And, and so look at this very carefully because this is what motivated me to bring this class to you in the first place is that this is where Islam is right now. It's at the place right now where thinking has been so thoroughly washed out of the religion and it's just this absolute devotion to the Quran and this belief that you're doing your duty when you kill an infidel. That it's your responsibility to do that because you can't possibly be right with Allah if you don't do what the Quran says. And that's really where this debate happened, like in the 900s AD, is when this debate pretty much settled what Islam was going to be from that point forward. A book that was dogmatically adhered to because adherence to the words in the book was like obeying the very voice of Allah and it was a sign that you were right with Allah and if you were doing what was right with Allah it was probably because he was in control of your life and sort of a status symbol how are we doing so far I've got a question please ask since we are seeing there's so many apart from Muslims getting into our government is the Trojan horse entering the United States? I would have to answer that with an opinion and I certainly have one but I don't think I'm going to give my opinion. I think that as George has wisely pointed out there are people who go through the motions of Islam just like Christians go through the motions of Christianity but I also think, just like I was joking about, and, and I didn't really mean what I was saying about the guys at this pastor's thing today. I don't know. They all seem like good people to me. I don't have anything against them. I just know how pastors' minds work because I are one, you know. And we're all a little bit territorial. And we're all a little bit guilty of, of feeling judged by the other clergy in the room. And we, we all struggle with that, you know. Who's the best pastor? You know, it's the same way when you go to the bowling alley or something. You know, who's the best bowler? And, uh, uh, but in all seriousness, if somebody in that group today started really talking about how screwed up those Lutherans are, those two may not have anything to do with each other, but at that moment, they just became best friends. Right? Well, I can tell you this. I know for a fact. The one church belongs to the Missouri Senate. The other one doesn't. I know there a couple of people that went to Redeemer Church, which is not a Missouri Senate. Mm -hmm. And when they had a couple of people from Missouri Senate come into the Redeemer Church, when their church found out about that, they told those people, if you partake of communion in that church, you will be excommunicated from your Missouri Senate Church. That I know. Sure. And yet, if somehow all the churches in town decided to declare war on the Lutherans in town, all the Lutherans would be best buddies at that point. They'd all look out for each other. So if I'm giving you an opinion, without actually saying what my opinion is, it might sound something like that. Because I think there's a lot of marginal people who, when push comes to shove, will side with the people they identify with. David Nixon was telling me about a guy he met on his last round of flights who was 
born in Israel and is, for all intents and purposes, an atheist. So he calls himself an Israeli, and by that he means he's a Jew, and his parents were Jewish. His grandparents were killed in, in the Holocaust. His dad fought in every war that Israel's been a part of since Israel was a nation. And this guy just says he's fed up with all of it, and he doesn't have any use for the religion. But if you ask him what he is, he'll tell you he's an Israeli Jew. Because at some level, these are my people. So what would you do? You know? So I think that's kind of the answer to the question, and, and, and it does concern me. Because it's fair to say that not every Islamic person is, every Muslim is an evil terrorist. If I'd be in deep trouble because I'm pretty sure that Muslim doctors have worked on my children with special needs, and I know my wife's had a Muslim doctor before when she was really sick one time, and, and they were tremendous. So what am I gonna say? People are people, and when they're caring for one another with the skills they've been given, then thank God for them. But if push comes to shove, you know, and we start deporting everybody who appears to be from an Islamic country, what do you think the people are going to do? I'm not saying we're doing that right now, but this is why, you know, I think Christianity is unique but not many Christians are really practicing it, its uniqueness. Because we can all claim to be Christians because we were raised in Christian homes, went to Christian churches all of our lives, but the thing that makes you unique in all the world is when you are a spirit-driven, born-again believer, because at that point, you aren't the same person you were born to be. And so you can say, yeah, I was born in the Catholic Church, but I can tell you right now, I was born and raised in the Catholic Church, but I didn't become a Christian in the Catholic Church. And I didn't become a Christian because there was anything wrong with my beliefs in the Catholic Church. It just didn't happen there. It happened outside the Catholic Church, and it was largely due to the influence of non-Christians, or non-Catholics, I mean. And so I gravitated in that direction. I don't have anything against the Catholic Church, per se, <coughs> because I know people who are really good Christians who are Catholics. <coughs> but I also know it's a system that doesn't make that very easy to happen. And I know it from that firsthand. So there are hardcore fundamentalist Muslims at the root of this thing too. So anyhow, did that address what you were asking? I mean, any other questions or concerns or expressions? I realized when I was writing this up today that we could never get through it tonight, so we'll come back to it in two weeks, wherever we leave off. And, and you know what? That's okay. And if we don't finish this book, I know how some of you hate it when Pastor Dan doesn't finish the book. When we said, one of these days we're going to get back to Joshua and see where we left off on, or what, what was the book I never finished that we were reading? Uh, was it Joshua? George, I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm, I'm asking, I'm looking at Penny because it was... <laughs> Oh, there's the one book that there was, and I can't even remember. It might have been. I will tell you, I do have a plan. I've had a plan for several weeks now for the fall. Um, and I'll just give you a hint right now. Um, knowing that there's going to be a split in the United Methodist Church that will really start to hit home this summer, don't know how it's going to play out timeline. I don't know the timeline, but here at this church, sometime in the next year, year and a half, We'll have to decide where we're going on this, and I'll, I'll 
do my best to help us get there and a God-given group of leaders are going to help me like George and, and you people, all of you, you know, we'll get there together and, and we'll find a way to honor Christ and welcome the Holy Spirit. That's what we should do. And that's what I will preach. That's what I'll advocate. But as far as this business in the church goes, I thought that next fall would be a really good time to have a class on what we believe. <laughs> you know, if, if we're going to say we're Methodist, and, and we should know by next fall which way the church will probably go if there's a split. Because what it means is there'll either be a move toward joining a more liberal version of the United Methodist Church or joining a new conservative expression of Wesleyan Methodist tradition, okay? And depending on which way we go, I'll have a class and I'll teach you what the new system is going to be about or the old system is already about. It kind of depends on where you all go, and I'm not going to try to influence you on that. I know where I'm going. I've already made up my mind, but what you decide is the way we'll go, and this class can be about that so that we can stop talking about Islam and start talking about what people at Shiloh believe. Got a question, Scott? Oh, okay. All right, so, so considering that second debate, we decided blind faith is just easier than trying to maintain a constant sort of mental vigilance, you know. Um, like talking to my friend Ron Flowers, you know, you can say, that'll never happen here, which is blind faith that could be rewarded with a very troubling outcome. Or you can always be vigilant, which is harder. And it means you got to have a lot, a lot more finesse when you're trying to be vigilant, you know. Because if you're welcoming other people's thoughts, you still have to be pretty confident about what you believe, you know. I always take, like young Christians, especially when they're young people who are young Christians, I always discourage them from debating with their non-Christian friends. I always say, no, 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 no. You, you, you know, Padawan, you need to spend some time under the tutelage of a good Jedi. You need to learn before you go out there and try to preach your faith to other people because they're going to confuse you and have you doubting everything you thought you knew. So it really takes some time to build up your, your muscles, your spiritual muscles. You know, uh, got to get George to work out with you so you're strong mentally and spiritually to have people challenge what you believe because then you'll be okay when they say something that seems reasonable. And you'll say, you know, I'm going to have to think on that. And then you come back a week later and you go, I thought it over. I still believe what I believe, but thanks for sharing what you believe. You've got to be in a good place to do that. And not everybody is, so you've got to know your strengths and weaknesses. And, and the thing about Christian community is, is if you don't feel strong, then stand behind somebody who is. It's okay. You know, that's the secret. So what does it say about their, their view of the nature of Allah? So, so if they think blind faith is more important, then what are they saying about Allah? They're saying that it's impossible to understand Allah, and uh, so therefore you just simply read the word and do what it says. Right? That's simpler. And, and honestly, even in the culture of Islam, if you think about it, um, uh, can't do it. Don't text me while I'm trying to do my class. Uh, there. Sorry, I can't talk right now. So, um, it's the only reason I have one of these watches is because I can do that. But um, 
you know, if you think about it, in the culture, just like when we watch movies with Arab characters, let's say, uh, anybody ever watch the, uh, the the version of Robin uh, Robin Hood where um, where uh, Morgan Freeman plays the Muslim friend and uh, Kevin Costner plays Robin Hood? Yeah, like I believe he's a lord from England. You know, he's like Robin Hood with a cowboy hat and a cowboy accident. But anyway, what does Morgan Freeman character do? Oh, Allah knows best. I don't argue with Allah. I just do whatever he says. It's like it's in their, it's in the cultural DNA of Islam, right? You know, we just don't argue with Allah. We don't, you don't question Allah. You know, Allah knows everything. And how do we know that we're doing the right thing? Well, we must be doing the right thing because the Quran says to do it. And Allah knows everything. So there you go. You know, which means that at some point, that's like saying, you know, you. You're, you're an infidel and you're my best friend and you saved my life, but at some point, you know, I'm going to have to kill you. Why? Well, because the Quran says so. At some point, it's a question of whether you're going to go to hell or I'm going to go to heaven, and I plan on going to heaven, which means I have to kill you, so you can go to hell and I can go to heaven. I mean, you know, so that, that's the absolute logic of, of the devotion to the Quran. So that doesn't mean your doctor feels that way. I'm just saying because, because, like I said, there are a lot of people who are passively culturally associated with their religious system. And they're not thinking that way at all. In fact, they think an idea like that is absurd, just like you think it's absurd. But the core says different. I'm going to give you just one more thing before we go, because I want to leave with scripture from our Bible. How can Christians bring hope to Muslim friends who are caught in the trap of fatalism? And what they mean by fatalism is, is if you believe that Allah's authority and word are absolute and you just have to do what the Quran says, even if your best friend is, a, is an infidel, you know, if, if you believe that, you've got a fatalistic view of life. That, that, you know, sooner or later I have to die for the sake of Allah. Sooner or later I'm going to have to kill myself taking out infidels. But it's all for the glory of Allah. Now, I'm sure they're really enthused about that when they're looking at their little children and their pretty wife and enjoying their garden back in their house or whatever. You think about that. You know, that's a fatalism that ruins everything about life. So how does a Christian respond to that? Well, Christians can use the Bible. Because the first thing, what's the number one rule with Quran and Islam? Don't try to tell them why they're wrong. Now you know why. Because they're so dogmatically devoted to the absolute authority of the Quran that for you to question them will automatically put them in defense mode where they're going to go, I don't question that. that would, for me to question that would be wrong. So what the author says we should do is we should just talk about how our Bible invites interaction with God and debate with God. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 1, 18 and 19, come now and let us reason together. In this passage, if you read, if you read the larger part of the context of it, it's God saying that. God is saying, think about the book of Job. Remember what happens with Job? You know, he has all this hard luck, and his wife says, curse God and die. And, and, and finally, his friends come to comfort him, and for seven days, they are the best friends ever. And then on the eighth day, they speak and ruin everything. It's when they just sat with him in his misery. They were doing something called sitting Shiva. They were just sitting with him in his misery and they didn't offer him any comfort or explanation apart from their company. 
And you know, if you've been around somebody who's deeply grieving, company is the best thing you can be. As soon as you talk, you're loud and blower. Um, fortunately, though, they don't hear a lot of it. So, you know, if you screw up and say something dumb at the funeral home, don't worry, they won't remember. But better not to say something dumb. But then his friends start offering all their debate and everything. And what's really cool is you got like pages and pages and pages of, of you know, his friends telling him why he had all this hard luck and why his relationship with God was messed up and that's what caused all of his hard luck. And then finally, Eliphaz, the kid, he starts shooting his mouth off and that's when Job's had enough. It's like, okay, these guys are my equals, but you're a kid and you're talking down to me and I don't like that one bit. And so he gives old Eliphaz an earful and the next thing you know, God chimes in. So it's like God's been sitting there in the discussion the whole time, right? We just didn't know he was there, but he was there. And he finally says, okay, people, now you listen to me, he says. I said, that's the kind of God we have. And, and we have, like one of the most beautiful books in the whole entire Bible, one of the best pieces of literature in human history is the book of Job. And that discourse between Job and God, where God says, now, Job, where were you when I was forming the shores? You know, where were you when I was playing fetch with Leviathan out in the ocean? You know, he's, just, he's naming all this. And, and then Job says, I confess, I'm a sinner. Heap coals over my head, I'm stupid. I shouldn't. And, and God says, that's no problem, Job. I know how you feel right now. But it's important that you keep your relationship with me in the proper perspective. You don't forget who I am, because I haven't forgotten who you are. You are my faithful son. And I will restore you. I will rebuild your fortunes. I will bring you back to a place of honor. And remember, everything with me is eternal, so you haven't lost anything that you won't eventually get back. I mean, isn't that fantastic? There's nothing like that in the Quran. That's not even encouraged. You're not even supposed to imagine God being like that. Come and reason with me. And then the, the other one that I have there is from the New Testament, 1 Peter 3.15 but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we're invited to reason with people about where our hope and joy comes from, and we speak to them with, with poise and, and reverence. Like, you know, we don't force people to accept our religious beliefs. We bear witness to how this system of belief has changed our lives. And one of the most profound ways we bear witness, I'll close you with this. You remember the tsunami that hit back in, uh, what was it, 06? Around December, no, it was January of 06. And all of Indonesia got massacred and this thing. You remember that? I mean, 200,000 people died, I think, before it was all said and done. I was following along, I've always, if there's one United Methodist thing that I've always believed in, it's UMCOR, because UMCOR is just a really good entity. The, the Methodist Church is really messed up in a lot of ways, but UMCOR is good. And I remember watching some stuff from UMCOR come over the internet, and in those days I had dial-up, you know, and, and uh, I would download an email with a picture, and it would take the picture forever to appear, and I saw this picture before and after of this Indonesian community. And there's houses and people and boats and everything, and then over here is nothing. Just the outline of this little isthmus that these people lived on. And then it had a story under there. Umcor went in, and Christians started helping those Muslims rebuild their lives. 
And the story said they were astonished because not one Muslim lifted a finger to help another Muslim, let alone anyone who wasn't Muslim, after this disaster. And there they were getting food, shelter, help rebuilding their lives from Christian infidels. What's the difference? Jesus is alive in your heart and it comes out in the compassion and the words of comfort and the love. Just what Peter says here, it's sanctifying, it's, you're sanctifying Christ in you. You're, you are affirming Christ in you and letting him speak more loudly through you when you get out of the way and then do and say things that make such a big difference. And the, and the most amazing thing is, is that Islamic people think that we're nuts for helping others, but when we're helping them, they're mighty grateful for it. And it just really, so how do you witness to your Islamic friend? Radical grace and love makes all the difference in the world. Don't try to tell them why they're wrong. Just show them why you're right. George, you got a prayer for us? I do. Thank you, brother. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, what a joy to come before you through the name of our Lord Jesus. We've had a wonderful Bible study. You have shown us what we need to do. Help us to continue walking in your word because it is your will for us. As we leave here, be with us until we meet again for another Bible study. Bless us abundantly and bind us with the cords of love that can never be broken. We praise and glorify you now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, everybody. Next week, 630 in the sanctuary for the Ash Wednesday service. Two weeks from tonight, back here. Are you okay? Hey, Chris, John, how are you? Good. Uh, i got to go tell my wife whatever she texts me about, and then I come back. I'll come back to you. I'm, I mean, I'm just, yeah. I just have to tell her for a minute here. It's all written. So it's no, no big deal. It's just a, a line of reasoning. Oh, yeah?